Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So just before we kick off with the meat of today's podcast, just want to give you a quick public service announcement, let you know where we're going. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I made some comments about classical Christian education, uh, which, as you remember, I said is a uh, the particular style of Christian education that Nicole and I chose for our kids, uh, and uh, we are enthusiastic advocates of it. I wanted in that podcast to highlight some uh, potential pitfalls with it. Every educational method has its potential pitfalls. And I guess the pitfalls I highlighted, well, they're not distinctively unique to that educational model, though I do think they tend to be, uh, in some contexts, uh, more prevalent there. But anyway, um, a couple of things coming up uh, today, but I'll talk about that in a second. In a couple of weeks' time, I'm hoping to have an opportunity to talk with somebody else uh, about to, to pick up some responses to those criticisms and try and dig a little bit deeper, see what we might constructively do uh, what more we might constructively do to try and sharpen the ways that we're trying to raise our children and teach our children. I take it that this is a concern, a direct concern for many of us, uh, because you'll be a parent or you'll be a young, young person yourself. And even if you're not currently blessed with children, you may have them in the future. And even for people who don't have children themselves and are not likely to have any at any time in the future, well, I hope that you're still concerned, you're still uh, interested and consider it valuable to reflect on the uh, issues that children face. They're part of our community, a very important part of our community. So I make no apology for uh, including all this stuff about education, and I hope that it's uh, helpful for you wherever your um, particular stage of life, whatever, whatever stage of life you happen to be at. So two or three weeks' time, hopefully, we'll have a chance to do that when I have a guest with me. Uh, this week, uh, I happened to have the opportunity to visit the Grace Classical Christian Academy in Granbury, Texas, where Mr. Josh Taylor, one of our members here, is headmaster. I've had him on the podcast before. I find it very interesting speaking with him. He's an educator who's deeply theologically engaged in the, the wise of our education, not just like the practical how-tos. He wants to think about uh, why we raise our kids in the way that we do. Uh, and that leads to some theological matters which are relevant not just for children, but for all of us. And that's what we dive into in this podcast. So uh, it's just audio only. So in a moment, I'm going to disappear from the screen. If you're watching this on YouTube, you won't notice much difference, I don't think, if you're just listening to the audio version. And I hope you find this conversation helpful. Thank you to Josh for taking the time to speak with me. And I hope you find the conversation helpful to you. God bless. Bye for now. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the All Saints podcast. I'm here with Mr. Josh Taylor of the Grace Classical Christian Academy in Granbury, Texas, also a member of All Saints Presbyterian Church. You'll know him and his family if you're a member here with us. Um, I've actually had the pleasure and privilege this morning, it is Tuesday morning, of uh, coming out here to speak to some members of the school, some of the students, and that recording uh, will be available on this podcast and perhaps on other platforms as well if it's not already been made available so you'll be able to hear what I talked about with them but today I'm here with uh, Mr. Taylor great to be with you Josh Taylor yes thank you for being here yeah it's a pleasure and um, I want you to tell um, all our listeners what it is you want to talk about it's something we have touched on before but we had a conversation in which you said look I want to go deeper into this topic and try and flesh out some of its implications and then after we've talked about that, I want to pick up something that was in another recent podcast, 
um, that is also pertains to your field of expertise, um, Christian education, and see if we can make some clarifications and just push that discussion a bit further forward. But why don't you kick off with what you want to talk about first? Yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things, we were, we were at the ACCS conference a couple of months ago over mm-hmm. the summer, and I'm listening to a talk, you know, which is fairly normal, and Joe Rigney, and at the time, I confess, I really didn't know who this person was, and I went into the the talk because I was just interested in, you know, it said priest, king, prophet, um, so right out of the gate, I'm kind of thinking, oh, well, that's kind of a different order than I'm accustomed to hearing, you know, prophet, priest, king, you hear a thousand times, and um, priest, king, prophet, and how it correlates to classical Christian education, and so he starts talking about it, and and he, he brings up the Sayers method, and we've talked about the Sayers method before and, and how it's kind of fundamental to the ACCS understanding and philosophy of education. And he kind of goes through connecting the Sayers method to the priest-king-prophet paradigm. In fact, he actually uses it as the, the baseline. Uh, he says that you know the Sayers method is kind of peering into this biblical paradigm. Right. Right. And connects it, you know, to um, to how we're doing classical Christian education, how the ACCS right. has done classical Christian education. And so he starts to bring up some of his sources and he brings up James B. Jordan and he brings up you. He says, you know, I'm kind of primarily getting some of these things from James B. Jordan and Steve Jeffrey. And uh, I was like, well, OK, I know those people. I go to church with them. And, and so, you know, we're, I'm kind of geared in and he, he kind of just goes through this biblical paradigm that I'm, I'm sure I've heard before connect mm-hmm. with Sayers, but it's never registered. And I'm starting to think, wow, this is a, this is a paradigm shift. This is a game yeah, changer yeah. because for years I've said, well, you know, I'm, we as a school are of the Sayers method. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but we really, we're of the biblical method of pedagogy and understanding the biblical frame of, uh, of a child and stuff like that. But it wasn't until recently that I feel like I've started to really understand some elements of that. And with this paradigm, I thought it was extremely helpful. Right, um, right. And, it, and it gets us back to a biblical basis for what we're doing every single day in the classroom. But at home, in church, the Lord's Day, there's so many components right. that, uh, that, are, that are working behind the scenes that I've not yet uh, unearthed. And that's kind of what this is for, is to talk about that. Right, fine. Well, I mean, it, it might be helpful then just... Uh, very briefly, just to sketch what you just referred to as the, the Sayers method, and then to show, and I think your way of putting it is exactly right, um, This the biblical picture that I learned from uh, James Jordan and from others who were influenced by him, um, but I think it's entirely biblical. So let's talk about that afterwards. So roughly speaking, just in summary form, um, anybody who's been involved in classical Christian education will know that the uh, pedagogical structure of the uh, the teaching method follows three broad stages, which are generally labelled grammar, logic, rhetoric, sometimes grammar, dialectic, rhetoric. And the emphases are grammar, learn the facts, logic, figure out how to put them together, rhetoric, creatively uh, develop your own insights into and your own way of communicating that subject. So, for example, in a foreign language, your Grammar stage is learning loads of vocabulary and verb paradigms and declensions and conjugations and so on and so forth. Um, The logic stage, you're starting to read more and more texts, perhaps going back to texts um, of some significance. So if you're reading Greek, you're reading the Bible, obviously. If you're reading German, you're reading Goethe um, and so on and so forth. And then the rhetoric stage, you're actually starting to produce your own work. Mm -hmm. You're... 
um, writing more detailed exegetical papers of texts, or even writing text yourself, writing Latin poetry, writing um, short prose pieces in Greek and obviously in other languages. So that then is replicated across the, uh, the disciplines. So it's a framework for teaching all the different subjects. Now, all that is very familiar. Um, uh, what's familiar then to some people is that this was, um, I guess, re-articulated in the 40s, was it the 1940s, with Dorothy Sayers wrote an essay called The Lost Tools of Learning, which was actually a talk originally that was given, in which she claimed, firstly, that this was part of the medieval system of education, which she thought was a far better idea than the craziness that was being embraced in Britain in the 40s. You can only imagine what she must think of Britain and America now, um, if she was still alive. Um, and then she also claimed that the, the three stages map onto the, uh, what would you call it, the, the, the natural developmental stages of growth of a young child. So she would say a, a young child is naturally attuned to listening and hearing and to soaking up facts. As kids get older, they start asking more questions. They want to know how things fit together. They ask why, 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 why all the time, want to get to seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And then older children, as they get more towards adulthood, they're able creatively to start putting those things to work. And so um, speech and debate is a classic context for that, but there are many other situations. So um, now that's a, that's a hint that there's something more under the surface here. If it's the case that the grammar logic rhetoric thing maps onto something about human beings as we're created, you might just think that it's a reflection of a deeper paradigm that would be expressed in scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, the claim I made following Jim and others in the article that I wrote, and I forget where it was, it might have been in, um, it was before Theopolis, so maybe it was in um, Credenda Agenda or something like that. Anyway, um, the claim I made was that this is in fact a reflection of how we're made as human beings. And it is found in scripture in various different ways. First, in how individual people develop, but also more fundamentally and profoundly in the shape of Scripture as a whole as it traces the story of God's people. And so there's a bunch of claims there which you want to talk about. In we, We'd need to articulate and then justify those, I think. And that, that will then lead us more deeply into it. Then, so that's what you have in yeah. mind? Yeah, yeah. I think to kind of maybe sum it up in one thesis statement... I think what we're both interested in is determining how God has created children and, and people in stages of maturity. Yes. Right. And so I think one of the dangers in classical terminology is thinking, okay, this kid is in a grammar stage now somehow magically and mysteriously in the into, logic stage yeah, yeah. and then in this rhetoric stage. And what do we do with rhetoric students, you know, a 17 year old kid you know, to what degree do they carry with them the grammar and the logic stage? Yes, yes, yes. So really to kind of boil it down, I think, I, I might be incorrect, but I think it's all about the development of the child in stages of maturity. Yes, I think that's exactly yeah. right. So yeah. moving forward with what they have, the tools they have, the things they've learned, the, the basic groundwork into these different stages of maturity. Right, right. And then honoring how God has created them to learn and to grow and to develop, uh, and then building a system around God's word right. and God's paradigm. Right. So, so let me um, flesh out the the most fundamental way of seeing this in the Bible and try, kind of track it onto 
the Sayers paradigm and also make a couple of other observations. Um, grammar logic rhetoric in biblical terms, more fundamentally, priest, king, prophet. What I mean by that is that scripture presents the development of God's people from their earliest days in a way which highlights the roles of anointed leaders, but the leaders change, basically. The, the most significant leaders of the people in the earliest stages were priests, then kings during the time of the monarchy, and then subsequently prophets. Let me dig into that a little bit more. Um, uh, when God first began to establish his relationship with his people, um, fundamentally in the Exodus and the constitution of Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai, the, the preeminent anointed office is the priest. Mm. Hence, all the stuff with the tabernacle, I mean, half the book of Exodus is like about the construction, nearly half, it's like a third of the book of Exodus is about the construction of the tabernacle. The whole book of Leviticus is all about the priestly offices and the sacrifices and so on. They have this preeminent position in um, the people of Israel. Um, they're not supposed to have a king yet. They do have one or two prophets, of course, and that's an interesting observation because what it highlights is that the these eras of life are not hermetically sealed from each other. There's, not, there's no prophetic element in Genesis and Exodus. Right. And Moses was a prophet. Abraham was a prophet. But the preeminent anointed office is prophet. Now, what you do in the prophet stage is complete lack of creativity, just follow the rules. The priestly stage. Sorry, my, my bad. Yeah, thank you. Phew, that was close. <laughs> what you do in the priestly stage, let me completely re rewrite that. What you do in the priestly stage is complete lack of creativity, just follow the rules. Right. You, so the Shema comes to mind, right? Right. Hear and obey. Yes, hear and obey. And that's reflected then in how the, the cult, Israel's formal worship at the tabernacle, then the temple is supposed to operate. You do not want to go inventing your own sacraments mm. or your own sacrifices or your own rituals. You do exactly as you're told to do, which is why. You've got all those details in the book of Leviticus, and it's why Nadab and Abihu were consumed by the fire that came out of the altar when they tried to do something different. The whole point of being a priest is you just follow the rules. Follow the rules. Just follow the rules. Clean the temple. Clean, keep it clean. Keep it tidy. Do the sacrifices. Guard the way. Holy of Holies. Yeah, and you need to learn the facts and basically keep doing the same things over and over and over again. And, and Hebrews even makes this point. Day after day, the priest right. stands and just does all this stuff. Yeah. And right. distinctly, grammar stage, we might say, uh, highlights like the repetition, right. um, you know, learning the facts and the rules and, yes. And, yes. and hearing and obeying. And the point is, that's what a young child needs. And that's curiously and wonderfully replicated in Israel's early life is what Israel needs. Now, behind this structure, we'll talk about this in a second. Behind the structure is a, a fundamental claim that corporate historical eschatology let's say the doctrine of history mirrors individual eschatology so israel's life as a nation over many generations is mirrored in our individual lives as human beings mm. israel is the seed we are the seed of um the lord and so we, maybe we'll come to that but then you so yeah the... and just just briefly i mean that what that what you just stated in two sentences i think if taken seriously mm -hmm. and believed, would completely change how we read the Old Testament, Correct. the Old Covenant. I mean, yes. so I think oftentimes we we don't see it. I mean, we know that it's relevant. We say that it's relevant. The Old Testament, you know, we, we believe in the Old Testament. It's the Word of God and all these different things. Yes. Yes. However, how, you know, how do we read it? 
to where we can take it and use it and understand that we're, this is our history. Yeah. This is our heritage. And, and that's a very important point. We, so we should, we should circle back at yeah, some yeah, point. Yeah. It's very interesting to me that in some Jewish traditions, um, the book of Leviticus was the first book mm. that was taught to Israelite boys. Go yeah. figure, right? <laughs> now, so priest. Now, king. Uh, the, the, after a couple of false starts with um, uh, Saul, most obviously, but also Ishbosheth and mm. um, before them uh, Abimelech, the monarchy really takes center stage with the, with the reign of King David and then Solomon. Uh, now, what's distinctive about David and Solomon? Well, you find this in the reign of Solomon, who's the, the first king to... Uh, he's the king who really establishes the um, the worship of the Lord at the center of Israel's life. He's the one who gets to build the temple. David has to conquer the Philistines. He doesn't get to build the temple. He's a man of blood, so he can't do so. Mm -hmm. um, so Solomon does this. And Solomon's... Uh, the, the paradigmatic moment at the start of Solomon's reign is that uh, the stuff in um, 1 Kings 3 and 4 with his, his request for wisdom. And then you've got the two... Um, uh, women who come, two two women, one baby, you've got to figure out um, whose baby this is, right? And you will search the book of Leviticus in vain for a simple instruction right. that you need to follow to figure out what to do here. You need wisdom. Right. And this is such an important point to drill into because it's like, uh, you know, you'll, you probably get in conversations as well right. as I do. And people are like, well, I want to see chapter and verse on that one. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but one of the things that we say here all the time and in Christianity in general is like, Biblical principles rightly applied. Biblical wisdom yes. rightly applied. So the whole book of Proverbs, I mean, yes. you have to, yes. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're thinking that's prescriptive, um, it's going to be really difficult. But if you're thinking like, hey, these are principles and yes. um, to apply to a myriad of different situations, well, it kind of changes the approach. Absolutely. So so the, the, the requirement for um, a Bible verse that tells me X is an artificial, priestly, immature mm -hmm. requirement which is sometimes fulfilled in relation to simple instructions. Like, um, how about this? Don't commit adultery. Mm. No, that's a really good idea. Let's not do yeah, that, right? right? Um, but, but when life gets, uh, when you find yourself encountering more nuanced and complex ethical situations, as Israel does as her life develops, and as human beings do as their lives develop, you need something else. And so Solomon had prayed for wisdom, and now he gets to demonstrate wisdom. Then in First uh, Kings 4, you've got all the kind of things that he did and all these um, uh, plants that he knew how to number and all this kind of stuff. And, and, it, and there's lots of kind of symbolism and imagery there. But the bottom line is he's a really wise man. Mm -hmm. And then he said wise guy. That means something else. <laughs> who um, who uh, understands the way the world works. Now, just think about what that, what that tells you about the growth of a young person. Mm -hmm. um, you go from the point where, um, listen, Johnny, uh, you just need to eat eat your cereal, and then we're going to go to school, first grade, second grade. You get to, I don't know what grade it is, six, seven, five, six, seven, that kind of stage, and you'd be really worried if you had a kid who was just only responsive to simple instructions. You'd want a child to be asking why questions, the kind of intrigued and curious mm. questions that reflect a desire to know more about the complexity of life. And anybody who's a parent, actually, um, because this is how kids are made, you know the experience as a parent of when your um, little one is not such a little one. And it's like, why, 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 why? And I remember coming home from work sometimes and, you know, talked to Nicole, how was your day? It's like, she's totally exhausted because our eight, <laughs> nine, ten-year-olds have been asking why everything on earth all day. Um, so that's the, the kingly stage of Israel's life is 
a stage in which greater complexity is introduced deliberately by the Lord, their calling to the nations increases in mm. its scope. So now they're not just, you know, you've got to be a people having integrity within yourselves. You're going to be deliberately welcoming the nations in and seeking to shape them. It's quite a different picture from the book mm. of Joshua. In First Kings, it's like every king on earth, practically the known earth, comes to to um, uh, King Solomon in First Kings ten. You know, all the kings of all the nations around, and Queen of Sheba, obviously. Um, so you've now you're now deliberately embracing greater complexity. Mm -hmm. Now, in teaching, it's profoundly important to recognise that transition, right? And this is, I think, what Dorothy Sayers does really well is to find a way of articulating that, which in its presentation owes more to, in her case, the medievals and mm -hmm. perhaps um, some of the, her, their predecessors, but in substance reflects the doctrine of middle grace, I would say, in, in which what's happened is that um, the unbelieving world or portions of the unbelieving world have uh, grabbed a whole bunch of stuff from the church over the years and are now not acknowledging its source. In yeah. fact, it's a Christian insight right. reframed as not a Christian one. Yeah, and that's that's such a, a huge point of emphasis, you know, that I've been thinking through carefully. It's like we're not trying to re in classical Christian education. We're not trying to recreate the Western tradition. We're trying Correct. to, you know, we don't we don't want Greece and Rome. You know, no, no. you know, we're we're moving forward. We're we looking want the world, ahead. right? Right. We're, <laughs> we're after something bigger. Yeah, we yeah. want the world to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right. Absolutely. Right. You know, and I find it particularly interesting, you know, if you look at the uh, how, how a king ought to act and the yes. rules for the kings. And, you know, so the requirements for a king. Yes. Don't get a lot of horses. Yeah. Right. So don't don't have a lot of women, you know, yeah. multiple wives, you know, don't don't seek after a lot of gold. Yes. And, and what were they required to do before they became kings? Write right? down a copy of the law. Write down a copy of the law. So we see, you know, like the, 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 the maturing, the maturing process yes. uh, from this stage to that, you know, applied rightly to our students. Right. Like, and and, and the, the logic stage, the kingly stage presupposes the priestly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it presupposes it's required. There's this beautiful transition, you know, in the, in, in, the Bible, you know, the expectation that the king knows the the law, um, so that he can now then rightly apply it. Right, exactly. And then what you see in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and and embedded in the narratives of Israel and in uh, is the application of Torah. Mm. So Proverbs is not a different thing from Torah. It is Torah applied to the complexities of life. Mm -hmm. And Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. Is, is like Proverbs on steroids, you know, it's like, it's like to, to the painful complexities yeah. of life. Um, and it, it is interesting to think, too, because it's like it, the, 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 the kingly phase, the application of biblical principle, it never usurps the correct. law, you know. Right. And so you, and, you, and you see in the Jewish tradition, you know, there's, they, they do get in a little bit of trouble, Second Temple Judaism and like, you correct. know, elevating the Talmud and, and some of these other things that are, you know, equal with the law. Yes, and yes, yes. we could apply this in a bunch of different ways, you know, I mean, um, to different religions and stuff like that. Speaking yeah. ex-cathedra, the place of tradition and history. Yes, yes. Um, but anyway, no, I think that's it. interesting because I mean, one way of, of reflecting on what, um, contemporary Judaism and really Judaism after Christ um, had done or continued to do wrong one way. And there's many, many different things you'd want to say about this. But one way was um, 
in a, in a sense, it's an artificial elevation of the scribal mm. and thus priestly tradition, which is, of course, deeply frustrated by the loss of their temple. Mm-hmm. And really what they'd failed to do, uh, once you think of it in these terms, it's obvious, what they failed to do is move forward through these priest-king-prophet stages to Christ, who's the one who is the anointed priest, king, and prophet. Mm-hmm. He's the one towards whom we're heading in this historical overview who embraces and embodies in himself all these three anointed offices. And that's what we're trying to raise young men and women to head towards so that when they get to 16, 18, 20, they've got, albeit they're young adults, but they're adults Mm -hmm. in the sense that they've worked through these stages and and the platform of priestly has on top of it the structure of kingly, which then has the prophet standing atop that. Um, and it's not that the king stops learning new stuff. The king was always learning new stuff, mm-hmm. priestly, you might say, but now the king is doing something else with it. Right. Um, so that, that, in a sense, is the second stage, the logic stage. Um, now, in Israel's history, um, the move to the third stage takes place in a way that reflects the fact that Israel is a son of Adam. In other words, the prophets enter the fray at the point when the kings go off the rails. Mm. And I always love the way that Elijah pops onto the scene, really, as, a, as the first prophet, in, major prophet in the narrative of, of First and Second Kings. It's like he just pops up as though we're supposed to know who he is. And he goes straight to King Ahab and says, we confronts him, basically. And, and he's not introduced. He's not, he doesn't apologise for <laughs> butting his head and yeah. his big fat beard into the king's court. <laughs> And he speaks as though it's obvious that the king should just pay attention and do what he says. And at times it even looks like Ahab might do that. Obviously his wife is a bit of a problem at that stage. But, and he's a bit of a problem at that stage. But the prophets, in summary, come along in Israel's life at the point where the kings go off the rails, mm-hmm. leading the nation off the rails. And you see them in the narrative, Elisha, Elijah, Elijah, sorry, Elijah and Elisha, um, and you see, obviously, the writing prophets. Um, there were prophets before. Of course there were. Mm. Um, but the anointed office of the prophet, and there's been a ton of work done on the kind of the anointing, the, 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 the specific office of the prophets or the sons of the prophets. It seems there was some kind of office recognized in Israel mm-hmm. because of references to the sons of the prophet, the sons of the prophets. Um, uh, that office... Um, becomes to centre stage yeah. as the guiding light of Israel's life at the point where you can't trust the kings anymore. Mm-hmm. So how do we reflect that in Christian um, pedagogy? Well, what, we, what we're trying to do is to transpose that into a situation where we're raising sons of God our Father, men and women in Christ, not in Adam. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we have the prophet stage, which reflects the development of the maturity of these young men and women to the next stage. And at times that is necessary to correct their and others' sin, but it's also necessary as an expression of the righteousness and holiness and maturity that we see growing within them so that they speak out distinctively the truth in such a way that they're starting to shape the world around them. And you think of Elijah really as the paradigmatic prophet he basically rocks Israel. Mm. I mean, he yeah. just totally alters the course of their history. Now, now that course still ends in that terrible downward spiral of sin, but but that's what prophets do. If, if what you're wanting to do 
and I want to be cautious about this vocabulary because sometimes it's misused in a self-aggrandizing way. But if what you wanted to do was have men and women who change the world, you need to get them to that stage. Right. And by change the world, I don't mean um, necessarily or only change the world in the kinds of ways that uh, secular culture thinks of that. I'm not right. talking about influencers or even necessarily prominence in the way the world thinks. You know, a, a man and woman who get married, have a handful of kids, work hard, serve in their church, guy becomes a deacon, maybe an elder, or even if he doesn't become a deacon and elder, if he's able to become a deacon and elder when called upon, and your tagline about deacon-ready men, Proverbs 31 women, and then they just roll over and die and the next generation carries on. Praise God, that's going to change that's the world. That's world change. Yeah, I right. mean, it makes me think of Chesterton once said, you know, there's nothing more extraordinary than ordinary people living ordinary lives. Mm. You know, talking about what yes. you're saying, like just Christians doing Christian things. Right. So, so back to the prophet thing, um, the the distinctive feature of the prophet, well, they're twofold really. It's um, to take control of a situation that's gone bad mm. and try and fix it. And the world is full of situations that have gone bad. So our engagement with the world, if that's the right phrase, which in some contexts it might be, requires that kind of prophetic uh, wisdom and clarity of mind and courage to speak against and stand against the tide. But also even in situations that aren't going bad, um, to be a, a great husband and father, a great wife and mother, a great worker, a great um, disciple of Jesus and example to others, um, requires the capacity to live out mm. um, your own convictions in Christ in a way that shapes those around you. Yeah, and it, it, I think one other helpful thing that, that I've thought about you know, um, in the, the prophetical stage is you know, John fifteen fifteen mm -hmm. comes to mind, right? I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends, yes. right? And so yes. th this whole concept has been brand new to me in the last couple of months. Like the, the, the concept of the king's friend, yes. it's, it's not ever registered to me. And then you, you go back and you start looking at it and it's uh -huh. like, there's this, this, it's crazy deep and there's so many components to it, right? Mm -hmm. So how can we teach our children to go and kind of infect the world with, with the, the gospel and, mm -hmm how can they speak to these things? I mean, like, well, they, they were teaching them to know the will of Christ, right? I mean, to know the will of God, like they are, they are being raised to be friends of God, to be the King's friend. And, yes. Yes. And there's so much we can unpack and you can unpack that a little bit, but I, but I like to, I like to think about the, the prophetic phase as, you know, friends of God and, and there's other words that we could use, but to be, to be the King's friend, to be the friend of Christ and now we could we could we need to parse that out a little bit because now in 2022, yeah, saying yeah. that Jesus is my friend carries yeah, like some different. But uh, maybe unpack that a little bit if you want. Um, I think I mean there's so, lot, so many things you could talk about, but perhaps one to focus on would be the central insight that the one who is changing the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. so he's the one who's enthroned. Uh, he's the, the ruler of the nations. We under-celebrate his ascension and exaltation. Mm -hmm. um, however much we celebrated it, we're probably under-celebrating it. So the, the growth of the kingdom is the growth of Christ's kingdom. The mission of the church is the mission that Christ is continuing to do from his throne. Now, the way he's doing that is by filling his saints with his spirit so they continue to do his work. So the Acts of the Apostles, whenever you have a commentary on the book of Acts, the commentator it feels it necessary to just kind of parse the title. And normally they come up with something like, it's the continuing acts of Jesus 
through his Holy Spirit in his apostles and the early church. And that's right. <laughs> and um, the, uh, uh, the, the, sen- the open-ended sense you get at the end of the book of Acts it actually is structurally open-ended, which I will talk about another day, maybe in a few years' time when we've got time. Um, <laughs> but structurally, it's open-ended. It, it doesn't have right. a formal close. And that's very deliberate because this is a mission that's ongoing. So yeah. what that tells you then is the, the principal way in which we change the world is by our relationship as priest, kings, prophets with the Lord being secure. And so there is a priestly and kingly and prophetic aspect to our worship, Mm -hmm. which is the formal time of focusing more intently on our uh, being in God's presence and hearing from him and confessing our sins to him and being fed by him on the word and on the bread and wine. Um, And that is the the place where we are then, so to speak, empowered. You, you go out of the king's court, having been welcomed in as his friends, as sons, mm. not merely slaves, but as sons, you, uh, male and female sons. Um, you go out into the world then, and your primary connection is to the Lord. And I think this touches on a, uh, an issue which I think is is very hard to get right, because we we tend to live by sight not by faith Mm -hmm. and what we see around us is a society which in our age is drifting or marching headlong towards increasingly anti-christian convictions and practice and our danger is that we feel that um to shape this culture means we've got to be constantly swatting pagan flies all over the place (laughs) um and there's enough truth in that to to do damage because mm. yes, of course there are times when, you know, there's there's a Daniel who's confronted by Nebuchadnezzar and he just has to say, um, I'll I'll serve in your kingdom, but uh, I'm not going to eat your filthy stinking food and my name is Daniel, mm-hmm. not Belteshazzar. Right. Um, and there's a time to stand up, but how how do you get that? conviction and capacity and courage and and the wisdom to know what to um when to stand and the actual just the knowledge of what what matters well it's priestly kingly prophetic it's prophetic courage to stand against the tide in a context where you're exercising kingly wisdom and not sort of swatting pagan flies all over the place in order to stand on torah mm-hmm. the law fulfilled in christ priestly and so the the best way to be a man who or a woman who stands against pagan foolishness is to be principally connected with the living god as his friend mm-hmm. and so from worship then flows the spirit's power into every corner of our lives okay so let's conclude Let's get practical. Right. You know, I mean, not that that wasn't. Um, let's just think of some practical. <laughs> okay. Come down. Right I'm, really, down. I'm yeah. bad at landing the plane, so I'm intentionally <laughs> trying to. You know, because I think you crash land this one yeah. quite easily. Yeah. You know, because I'm thinking, I mean, is there anything that would be more, um, like, more of a paradigm shift if, if for one, students mm. understood this and believed yeah. it? parents if we understood this and and implemented like this this massive component to 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 parenting yeah i mean and then down the line somewhere to education yeah parenting the structure of our churches yeah you know um the the repetitious nature that is the lord's day i mean there's 
There's all these different things. So let's let's do a couple of things. Let's uh, let's give some let's review a little bit. Mm-hmm. Give some walking away points. But before that, let's talk about some helpful words, anchors. You know, some other things um, to help to demonstrate. You know, kind of concise points. So we have we have priest, we have king, we have prophet. Right. We have grammar, we have logic, and we have rhetoric. Yeah. So what are the what are what do you think are the organs? Do you want to? I mean, do you have specific thoughts? Because I mean, I, I think there's many ways of expressing yeah. this, and it depends whether you're thinking about raising a kid, educating a kid, leading a church, an adult growing in faithfulness, and mm-hmm. patching up bits from their past. Okay. What's in, your, what's in mind for yeah, you? Yeah. So just, you, hit me with whatever comes to mind, because I'm thinking right. So child, yes. adult, elder. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm thinking, um, you know, and Joe Rigney talked about this, and this is, you know, either you or Jordan. Um, yeah. You know, so the, the the operating thing for a priest is to hear and do. Right. A king sees. So now that he is here, now that he has heard, he's now seeing to apply. Yes. A prophet then speaks, or he or he walks. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. I mean, we could talk about the ox, the lion, and the eagle. Right. You know, an ox looks right in front of him. He yes. plows. And it's a sacrificial animal. It's Greece. a sacrificial yes. animal. Yeah, there's, yeah, I mean, we could... Lion, tell. king, yeah, the, tribe the, of Judah. The, yes. the, yeah, the, I mean, what are we going to do with all that? That'd be a whole other podcast. And, and, and then eagle um, is taking something yeah. far, far away. Right. Spreading prophetically yeah. the the fruits of the... The land of the people of God from where he's come. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, and something uh, one of the parents mentioned um, that I thought was unbelievably great was eagles eat snakes. Mm-hmm. We see an example of the of eagles eating snakes. Yes, yes. Right? And so isn't that just Genesis 3.15? Yeah, I think, I think what, what, I mean, what you're starting to see is um, the, the, the sketch of the shape of the whole of Scripture, priest, king, prophet, is then reflected in many, 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 many different ways from many different angles in things like prophetic imagery, like Ezekiel, and its interaction with other aspects of the way that the world is made. It's not an accident that eagles eat snakes and not um, lions and oxen. Of course, it's not an accident. All, all these, like the, the world is itself, the created world is a revelation of God, mm. which is not readable in the way that scripture is because of sin and our need for special revelation but is nonetheless it speaks and it speaks in many ways that scripture then opens our eyes to right um in the kind of ways you're describing mm-hmm. so i think um we we i i want to be I want, I, want, I want to accept the the the, the partial critique that well hold on a second we don't want to be fanciful eisegetical mm-hmm. I, I, I absolutely accept that and so we want to be careful. And so with appropriate tentativeness at various points, I think, yeah, that is really interesting right. that you've got the, the imagery of ox, lion, eagle, and it's eagles who eat snakes in Genesis 3.15 and so on. Yeah, I think I, I wouldn't want to bet my house and farm on it on the last day, not that <laughs> I have a farm. Um, but but it's, it's intriguing. And, and to the extent that exegetical claims of that kind are confirmed more on closer analysis they gain in credibility. So let me give you just one, I'll give you one other example. Well, I'll give you a few other examples if you like, but um, the the characteristic um, uh, relationships that priest, king, prophet deal with are priest with God, king 
with the people of God and profit with the whole world. Mm -hmm. So God, the people of God, the whole world. Um, now, if I want to confuse theological students for a couple of minutes, I sometimes ask them how many falls are there in the early chapters of Genesis? And they always say one, which is wrong. There are three. Again, this is a learning from Jim Jordan. There's the four that we all know about in, in Genesis 3, uh, a rebellion, a priestly rebellion against God, eating the fruit. Eating is a priestly activity. The, 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 the garden is a sanctuary. It's a, it's a cultic place for worship. So there's a priestly fall. Then the next fall is in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, his brother. It's with relationships within the people of God. They go wrong. And then the next fall is whatever's going on in Genesis 6 with the sons of God and the daughters of men, which I take to be um, something like a kind of prototypical Numbers 25 episode where it's, it's intermarriage and immoral relationships with people outside the covenant community. So you've got uh, priest, king, prophet is not just um, learn the rules, uh, get wisdom to apply them, change the world. When it goes wrong, it, it, well, the, it's relationships with God, with your, with your brother in Christ, and with um, the world. And then when it goes wrong, it's those relationships that go wrong. Right, now, so how are you going to fix that? The answer is, you will rebuild those relationships in that order. So what does Jesus do in John chapter 2? Well, wedding at Cana. Mm. Wine. Mm -hmm. Wedding. Um, uh, and then you've got the uh, temple cleansing, which is a rebuilding a reconstitution of the relationship with God and, and commentators always puzzle over well, what's the temple cleansing do, doing at the wrong end of the gospel the answer is because it's got to be put here because it belongs first in the order John chapter 2 then John chapter 3 who's Jesus talking to his brother Nicodemus right the teacher of Israel and it's, he's the representative Israelite and he says to his brother you need to be born again so you've gone fix a relationship with God temple fix the relationship with your brother nicodemus who are you going to fix the relationship with next the representative of the world so it goes up in um uh, john chapter 4 to sychar um to jacob's well and meets the samaritan woman and he says to her, you, we need to this needs to be fixed as well and it is so that you've got three sins god brothering the community world jesus fixes them in that order mm. Um, uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, 13, 14, 15, you've got three similar sins that echo the three falls of Genesis. This is in Whitehart's book, um, uh, uh, The House for My Name. Um, the sin in chapter 13 is um, a, a sin concerning unlawful sacrifice. Then in chapter 14, is, Saul is sinning against his brother. And chapter 15, he is a brother in the sense of his son, Jonathan. Um, and on all the other Israelites, because he wouldn't let them eat food. Go and read it, you can see it mm -hmm. for yourself. And then chapter 15, it's a sin in relation to the um, Amalekite king, whom he refuses to put to death. And Samuel is like, what the heck are you doing? Because of course <laughs> Samuel is, because he's the prophet who's trying to fix the king. Now what's interesting then, you've got fall, fall, fall. What happens after that? Well, we need a new world. Mm. We need to remake the world. So Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 6, what happens immediately after Genesis 6? Uh, in, with the sons of God and the daughters of men, the flood in the days mm -hmm. of Noah. So the waters will come over the world and destroy it and renew it. So we'll have a new beginning. In Genesis 9, you've got like a restatement of the covenant um, 
in Genesis 1. So what's going to happen after the three sins of Saul? 13, 14, 15, priest, king, prophet, chapter 16, David. You know now Saul is finished because David is going to take his place. And then in um, John uh, chapter 2, 3, 4, um, you've got the, those three sins. And then what's going to happen in chapter 5? Well, Jesus says probably more clearly than any time yet in the gospel, apart from perhaps John chapter 1, he, he demonstrates himself to be one with the Father in John chapter 5. Mm. He's talking about uh, making himself... The Jews were really angry because he was making himself equal with God. It's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're, you're getting That's the hang right. of it. You see? So um, what, what is that... What promise does that big structure hold out then? If we reinstate priest, king, prophet in our education, we'll have young men and women who are able to rebuild the world mm. by the grace of Christ, which is what you wanted, right? Because you want deacon ready men and Proverbs 31 women. Now, this, so, so the reason I say all that is partly because it just it blows my mind because the Bible is so, so wonderfully textured and complex and rich. But it also, frankly, it serves to cement in my mind that this is clearly embedded in the fabric of Scripture at every length scale. It's individual chapters, it's smaller and larger narratives, and it's the structure of the whole thing. Um, and it gives me greater confidence that this is, just about where you were right at the beginning, this is an inescapable feature of Christian uh, epistemology, um, of Christian eschatology, and certainly of Christian pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And um, Dorothy Sayers, to her great credit, um, spotted this mm -hmm. or spotted a shadow of this in the medievals and has helped us all re rediscover it. I thank God that my wife and I discovered this pedagogical framework through her work. Um, and since then, uh, we've only become more delighted with it. Um, and we've um, come to see it more deeply and richly embedded in the whole of scripture. Yeah. It's mind blowing. Well, you want to get some practical things there. I mean, like, well, I mean, that, I mean, you know, that was, uh, there's a lot of practical so, so, things. And, and, but let me just really spell it out. I think let's suppose let's, uh, um, I'm not going to talk about my children too much, but I'll give you a couple of examples. My son is just about to turn 19. He just, um, started at college. And, um, so we've got, and we've got two daughters who are a bit younger than them. They're all kind of firmly into the um, uh, prophet stage and beyond. Um, it will be really inappropriate for us to seek to place on them restrictions that would be appropriate to a prophet, mm -hmm. to, a, a, to priest, a priest. right? And in fact, it will be an indictment against our upbringing of them if it were actually necessary as indeed sadly it is in some cases some people are badly um, raised some children are not appropriately discipled and disciplined and taught when they're young and then suddenly you've got a 15 16 year old who's way off the rails and you can't bring him or her back mm -hmm. well whose fault's that it's probably the parents because they've failed to inculcate at the appropriate stage the, the, the rules for life. Right. And so the and child it, has become frustrated as he or she has grown up. Yeah, and I was about to say the same thing. It's right there in the text and, uh, right. in the, the Ephesians 6 4, right? Mm -hmm. How do we provoke our children to anger, right? Yes. Right. So, I mean, we we expect something out of them that they're not capable of doing, when or we hold yeah. them to a standard that is, you know, um, out of Inappropriately line. Inappropriately juvenile or something. Right, yeah. out of yeah. line with the development of the child. Yeah. If, and, if you treat a priest like a prophet, they're going to go way off the rails. So that's the the feral six-year-old. Yeah, right. If you treat a 16-year-old 
like a four-year-old, they're going to go off the rails too because they'll bust the rails because they'll be so frustrated yeah. with the whole experience. And you see, like, I mean, you see this in different educational models and in different right. educational philosophies. And, like, so, I mean, not to be too controversial here, but, you know, like the love and logic movement, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but essentially it's treating the priestly stage and treating them like... Um, like, um, like prophets, prophets or, right. or, 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 or for, or kings and yes, yes, kind yes. of like superimposing and kind of getting yes. the direction backwards. Yes. And, and you see this oftentimes in other educational models where it's like the, the student is the leader of their own education. And, oh, man. and it's like, you know, so nobody kind of, would ever learn calculus. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you're, not, you're not just going to randomly discover yeah. that. And, and, and I think some, you, you, there's just enough. Think again to our structure. Of course, Abraham was a prophet. Moses mm. was a prophet. But that doesn't mean that Israel's entire structure of life was shaped by prophetic, ordained ministry. Right. It was priestly um, at that stage. Abraham went around building altars mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. And so, yeah, of course, your four-year-old is going to be creative. They're going to daub, paint. Are you going to let them do sure. that? But what a foolish thing to do to, to give. And I heard about this in, back in England years ago before we moved here. Um, uh, teachers will get seven-year-olds to write poetry. Mm. I'm sorry. Seven-year-olds have no idea how to write poetry. Um, uh, seven-year-olds haven't learned the rules of poetry and so they'll produce things which the teacher will have to tell them are good even though they're terrible because otherwise they'll discourage them and so they'll lower their standards and the students who could have gone on to write great poetry will be deeply frustrated mm -hmm. because they will sense in themselves as they're growing up this kind of love for language and for rhyme and rhythm and meter and colour and metaphor but they won't have the anywhere to 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 let it out. They'll be like a the proverbial fourteen year old um, muscle bound wannabe athlete who's kept locked up in a in a room because he's got no space to run around. And really, what he wants to do is be on a football field or shifting hay bales around. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to get there, he's got to be raised appropriately so that he can do yeah. that. Um, and it's it's. It's ironic, deeply ironic, that an attempt to allow creativity to flourish by getting a six-year-old to write poetry actually ends up crushing creativity mm -hmm. by not giving them the framework of, like, here's some great poems, let's read this. Right. Well, let's teach you to read first. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Then let's read some great poems, and then you can start to see right. how to exercise your creativity when you get to the stage that God has designed you for so that you can actually exercise yeah. it. And I mean, we could spend hours right. talking and applying that same logic to different fields. I mean, what comes to mind is art, you know, let's like that, let's give the kids finger pain and let them go crazy and stuff like that. Instead right. of learning the, the structures of art right. and all the basic fundamental elements. And yeah. And, and like, I don't want to beat up, you know, kids who the eighth birthday party, they do finger painting. Oh, that's sure. Fine. Right. That's, but that's, that's just kind of messing around. And yeah. that's great. We all do that a little bit, you know? Yeah. Um, but let's not confuse that with the the heart and soul of the structure of an education of a child. Because if you see in some of those kids who are six or seven, wow, they've got real creativity. Excellent, right? Remember them. Let's give them the tools. Now let's give them the tools. Let's teach them how to hold a brush. Right. And yeah. One story, I, um, my, one of my daughters is a really, actually both of them um, are, are good artists. One of them particularly loves to paint and to draw. And... Um, we were fortunate enough, by God's grace, to, to find in London uh, drawing classes by graduates of the Royal Academy of Drawing. It was one of the few places where classical drawing techniques is, are still taught. Um, and these were superb, young, enthusiastic graduates in, in classical art. 
and they gave these classes at the British Museum. So you go to the British <laughs> Museum awesome. and you've got these superbly trained artists teaching my little girl who's 10 or 11 how to, how to draw the Elgin marbles. Now, I went to visit an artist once on a trip to Albania, a guy called Tasso. I've got one of his paintings at home, a book that he gave me. And, and I told him through an interpreter about, I said, my, my little girl, you know, I, I'd love to know how best to encourage her because I'm not very artistic. I told her to come back these drawing classes and his eyes filled with tears because he he never had that. Wow. And yeah. and, and he had a, a good training, but he would have given his left arm, not his right arm, his right, <laughs> he'd have given his left arm, I'm convinced of it, to have been able to have that hmm. formal training and to sit in the British Museum with all that stuff that the British Empire stole from yeah. various countries over hundreds of years. Yikes. Um, and to have that more structured formal experience now he had his own training was superb and beautiful paintings but he could see the the preciousness and the value mm. of that and i think we we deprive our kids in sciences and languages and art and history and every discipline music if we don't respect the fact that look this is just how god's made people and we've got to give them the tools and let them develop and develop gradually and then they will flourish as they end yeah. adulthood yeah no that's that's great um it should also just hearing your story just give us a deep sense of gratitude and thankfulness and you know one last thing before we close um, yeah, yeah. i was thinking about how just in how you were speaking about all these uh, you know the, the priest king prophet paradigm and just thinking about how eminently practical it is in the classroom yes. training the students in righteousness yeah. Right. So giving them guardrails, you know, I mean, one of the things I hear uh, all the time, you know, I've dealt with for a long, long time is, well, the kid didn't know. <laughs> well, you know, this and that, you know, yeah, the kid yeah. didn't know he was lying or the kid didn't know he was cheating or the kid didn't know he was that was all these different things. And it's like, what a what a perfect, you know, if we're thinking we're training these, these kids to give them the, the boundaries and, and God's word and God's law and all of these well, praise God that this happened because now they can know. Right, yes. You know, I mean, like, now they know where the boundary is. Now they know what they just scraped up, scraped uh, yeah, up or against. Stepped over. Yeah, yeah. Or stepped over. Mm, yes. You know, it's like you don't notice the guardrail that's keeping you alive as you're driving through the mountains of Colorado right. until you hit it. Until you know, you hit it. Yeah. You're thankful for it. And that's really good because that's an, that's an encouragement, I think, probably to teachers and especially to parents. Um, we, we, I, we shouldn't allow the impression to be created that this approach to education basically is like smooth, well-oiled machine and mm. nothing, nothing ever goes wrong. And all your <laughs> children will stand in height order as the teacher enters the classroom or as daddy comes home from work. You know, life is often chaotic and children are always sinful. And so they, they, it's not, in other words, that this is the thing that guarantees you never have problems. Right. Rather, this is the thing that gives you the framework to deal with them mm -hmm. because you think, yeah, no, there are, good theological grounds for being strict and well-defined and cheerfully requiring certain outcomes of my young children. And then of saying now they're, they're growing up somewhat and I can expect them to be a bit more creative and I should challenge them to be a bit more uh, creative and to, to, to figure out how things fit together in whatever discipline it is. And then ditto, when you've got a 16-year-old who just wants to tell you his opinion, well... Don't let him start a podcast. That would be a dumb idea. <laughs> but it's great for a 16-year-old to learn to graciously and thoughtfully um, spar with his mum or his dad. 
in an appropriate way without being abrasive about it. Um, and at times he'll push a bit too hard and he needs to be said, no, no, that's not a respectable way to speak to your mother or to your, your, your colleagues at school. Um, it's totally to be expected and not to be crushed. Uh, it is to be nurtured and flourished. So these men and women grow into adults who can hold their own and contribute to the world in which God has placed us. Yeah, that's so good. So important. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For it's your time. I here. appreciate it. Any final words? Um, not really after 50 something minutes. I mean, it's like <laughs> that we could talk about this all day. It, I, I guess, you know, one final word, this the whole thing just highlights for me the privilege of um, all of the educational and child rearing tasks we're engaged in. And I want to encourage teachers, uh, mums and dads, especially mums. Sometimes it's hard to see the big picture because you're so focused on yesterday's maths homework or, you know, my three-year-old this morning and all the oatmeal that ended, all up, ended up all over the floor again. And and I, I guess I just want to say, look, I hope that seeing this big picture is an encouragement to you yeah. because seeing it is the thing that will help you bring it about mm -hmm. and you'll and you'll see over the years um the fruit of your faith in what the word of god says yeah. if you keep walking in faithfulness so mm -hmm. encouraging to I, I love the 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 seemingly divine simplicity of it and right. how encouraging it is it's like i mean the the more i open this up and the complexity of it i see the simplicity of it. it's like we are we're after something that is very simple, training our children the way God tells us to do it. Yeah, like yeah. in this very simple, like faithful, quiet um, way, you know, we just, this is, this is in scripture. It's right yeah, before us. Yeah, and, yeah. and there's something deeply encouraging as a parent knowing that, and this is, this is the way the Bible has us raising our children and yes, then down yes. the line, educating our children. And in and, and that we, we know that we can operate in faith we know yep. that God isn't going to take us uh, too far out and leave us. He's going to He's going to walk with us. He's going to be there. He's going to make the path straight before us. Mm. He's going to go before us, and He's going to be with us. And and I find all of this conversation, even the the complexity, the theological complexity, and the depth. I mean, there's so many other elements to it. Yeah, yeah. That's the walking away point, the simplicity of it, how concise it is. Yes. Training children the way that God has us to train them. Yeah. Amen. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Appreciate your time.